Ah, busy old day on RTE Radio 1 and plenty to catch up with. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. Um, and I took the phone and spoke to the nurse uh, who said that there had been an accident. And uh, I pushed her a little and said, you know, the details and how is everybody... Um, she said that mum was critical and I knew she was dead. This morning I was Googling ziplining and I went to trusty Wikipedia and they had a few names for ziplining. Ziplining, zip wiring, flying fox and wait for it, Ray, wait for it, death slide. <laughs> if, if there was a stain on something white, yeah. I'd just, I'd chance a bit of bleach. Well, I wouldn't, no, if you're going, no, Claire, don't, don't be doing this to me. The whole country, no, stay away from bleach now, the last year. I'm telling you all now, stay away from the bleach. And we'll start in the morning on Today with Claire Byrne, an eloquent and moving conversation about road traffic accidents. Journalist Claire Egan was talking about how a normal sunny day darkened the rest of her and her siblings' lives after they lost their mother in a car crash. Now, Claire Egan is a freelance writer and she says if we knew what she knows about the toll a road death can take on a family, we would think twice about our driving. And Claire is here now. Claire, you're very welcome. Good morning. And as I said, the warning has just popped up in front of me as you were walking into the studio today. And I know we hear that and we listen to it and some people take heed of it. But I think what you're going to tell us today will really uh, bring it home because in 2007, wasn't it, your mother, Therese Egan, died in a a road accident. Do you want to tell us what happened? Yeah, um, so it was the uh, August Bank Holiday 2007. It was a Saturday evening. I was at home. Um, Eurostar was on and uh, I had done the dishes and I remember very distinctly leaving the dishes out because I wanted her to come home and see them and I wouldn't have to do the dishes the following day. Um, I was on the phone. I had a hair mask. It was just very normal. It was the average, like, sunny Saturday um, summer evening in our house. I was home with my two sisters um, who were uh, 13 and 15 at the time. Um, and mum was late. And um, we were, to be honest, I wasn't too worried. She'd often be late. She'd get chatting to somebody and be delayed. And so I didn't worry. Um, but at some point I was on the phone um, chatting with a friend and my sister came in with, with uh, the phone. She had rung mum's mobile and it didn't answer. And she rung again and again and again probably 10 times um, and eventually a nurse in uh, Tullamore Hospital answered the phone and said to my sister that there had been an accident and um, she came in my sister came in handed me the phone I knew from her face that she was something was really wrong handed me the phone and and ran off Um, and I took the phone and spoke to the nurse uh, who said that there had been an accident and uh, I pushed her a little and said you know the details and how is everybody um, she said that mum was critical and I knew she was dead um, I, I knew she was dead by the tone of the nurse or just instinctively I think probably a little of both um, I think I knew that they wouldn't give me that news over the phone um, but I I could feel it mm-hmm. I could feel and you were 19 it. and you were the oldest of the of the siblings at that time so taking charge really from that that moment well trying to yeah Yeah. I mean I think we were we were just so shocked we were just like it was so upending for my life and for all of our lives Um, and we did our best and I think we supported each other well but there was no replacing her Mm -hmm. um, and everything that she brought to our lives and it was really I'm sure there's a lot of listeners who've been bereaved but it's a for me it feels like a very distinctive thing to be waiting for somebody to have a plan for the fe- the following day 
and then she just doesn't arrive. You know, she, she doesn't come. She'd been in a car accident and it wasn't far from home. What happened? What do you know about what happened? So that weekend she had been babysitting. My um, uncle had a family wedding and she was minding his children who were who were babies then, but they're almost adults now. Um, and uh, she was driving home. She was from Forban um, and she was coming through Tullamore, just outside Tullamore where there was a crash. Um, to be honest, we... we um, we know some of the details of what happened, but there's a lot that we will never know. Like those final moments of her life, we'll, we'll never know. Um, she was, um, yeah, the, you know, there was a series of bends. It had been quite a dry summer and then it had rained quite a lot. So the roads were slippery um, and the other driver crossed over and, you know, there was a horrible crash. Um, and it was known to be a dangerous stretch of road. It was, it? yeah, it was. And and uh, we met at the court date, the one of the women who lived in that house, who lived, there was kind of a row of houses, you know, in front of where it happened. She came out and prayed with mum as she was dying. And um, yeah, I really, you know, I'm so grateful to that woman, but I'm also really feel for her because I don't think it was the first time she had seen a crash. Um, and it's literally outside her front door. Yeah. You know. Your brother was in the car as well, was he? He was. He was He was minorly injured, but he was OK. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Claire spoke about the lasting impact it had on her family. When someone dies as suddenly as your mother died, that um, the shock of it. Yeah. I, can you can you separate the grief that you feel and that you carry even today to the shock of what happened in that moment? I don't think I can, Claire. I I. I I have a very distinctive memory of we went that night to the hospital and I saw her body and, and like the blood on her. And um, like I remember all of that very clearly. Um, and then finally, it was very late when we were going to bed. But I remember lying down a couple of hours afterwards. And every time I closed my eyes, I just felt the bed go from under me. I just couldn't. I just couldn't understand. Like it was such a, a visceral shock um, that I couldn't. I didn't sleep a wink that night. Um, and that shock, and I, I write a little bit about this piece that was published in The Independent, that is the thing that has stayed with me as much as the grief. Mm-hmm. You know, that feeling every time you get in the car, it took me a long, long time to be able to, you know, get in the car and feel comfortable. I don't still feel comfortable all the time. Don't you? For me, I find it very hard because it's it's very um, habitual for almost everybody and it's a part of our lives and we don't think about it. But I don't think the average person can can connect running down the shop to get a pint of milk or dropping the kids to school with your life collapsing, with that feeling of saying, well, the world I thought I had is now gone. And, you know, I'm struggling to get out of bed while also needing to figure out, you know, at 19, you're kind of thinking college and where am I going to live and what kind of a life am I going to have? Um, it, you know, it's it's very hard to live with in the aftermath of that kind well, of shock. Well, most of us don't think it's ever going to happen to us, do we? Exactly, exactly. And I don't think there's, there's. I think the Road Safety Authority do fantastic work and there's some really powerful campaigns, but it's very different to have a lived experience mm-hmm. of it. Which know. is why you want to talk about it. Exactly. Because you say, if you knew what yeah. I know about how this changes your life, you'd think differently about how you drive. Yeah, exactly. And you, and you believe that in your heart. You know it, you've lived it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And it's not like any of us can get distracted. Any of us can make a mistake. You know, we're running to dinner and you're a couple of minutes late. You want to text and say, I'm on my way. I'm a couple of minutes late. Making that choice. You think you're being nice to your friend, letting them know. 
but you're putting yourself at risk and you're putting other people at risk without even really registering that that's what you're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it becomes such a habitual part of our lives. Um, and you mentioned the stats and I think we as a nation had done a lot of progress in terms of improving our performance um, in terms of road fatalities. And that seems to have slipped when we look at the the figures bear that out. Um, You spoke about the shock and how difficult it was to recover from that. But you had to because, as I said, you were the oldest sibling Mm -hmm. and you had to pick yourself up and start living your life again and also help guide them through. How did how did you do that? Do you know how you did it? No, no, (laughs) no. And I also think, to be really honest with you, I don't know how much I guided them. You know, I think I, I really struggled And we all struggled and we did our best. But I think for each of the four of us, we had to find our way forward ourselves, Mm -hmm. you know. And like this is the moment where I say therapy was really important and other supports were really important. But there's no replacing a mother, you know, and there's no... Um, everybody thinks their mother is wonderful. And a lot of us are really blessed to have wonderful mothers. But mum was so um, grounding and loving and caring. And she did so much for us. For, for us as her children, but also for her friends and her, her family, her own siblings, everybody who knew her. When she died, we all just felt this loss that we didn't notice little things that she did, you know, mm-hmm. things like simple things, coordinating things or organising things or, you know, one of us would be upset. I remember sitting with her coming back from music lesson or something in the car and she'd sit and chat me through something and go into the house and have your dinner and you're OK. So taking the time just to... Make sure you're okay. Yeah, yeah, that pre- that loving presence. Claire Egan remembering her mother Therese and reminding us all to be careful on the roads. From today with Claire Barn. And on the Ryan Tuberty Show, we were introduced to yet another Irish crime writer to take their place among the very many successful female authors in the country. Michelle McDonough was telling Ryan about reaction to her debut. There's something I have to tell you. It's it's all quite surreal, to be honest, because it's it's something I've dreamed about for so many years, but talked an awful lot about. I never <laughs> actually sat down and wrote. So I suppose it was kind of I was heading close to 50 and I thought if I don't do this now, I'm never going to do it. So I did a, a Faber course, an online Faber Write Your First Novel course, and finally actually wrote and finished a novel. And it just it's so surreal to see it on the shelves. It, it still doesn't really feel like it's mine, even though my name is on the book and everything. Yes, it, it feels otherworldly. It does. No, but it that's does. that's yes. that, that's all the more enjoyable then for you, because it's not it's not something you're taking for granted. And no, no. I, I think what I like about the, like, like so many things about your book, but one of them was the, the idea that it was an Irish family on a farm. And I think what what this book has is relatability that people all around the country, anyone who's been on a farm, who lives on a farm, will we'll get this immediately because it's the it's the saga, the family saga. Yes. So let's get the, the potted history, the blurb, if you like, Michelle, and take okay. it from there. Tell me what the book's about. So it's set in the fictional East Galway town of Glenbeg. Yeah. And we the story opens with the discovery of the bodies of wealthy local businesswoman Ursula Kennedy and her husband, who's a farmer, Jimmy, um, in their slurry pit. Um, at first, it seems like a tragic accident, but um, it's not long before the gossip and the rumours start to swirl. And the Gardaí become suspicious when um, they hear about recent tensions on the farm. And then there are all sorts of kind of, I suppose, secrets bubbling in the background. Everybody seems to have secrets. 
And I, I suppose it is a who done it, but I think it's more of a of a why done it. You know what has led to yes. to this happening. Yeah, and 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 there's there there are about five or six central characters, and you you, you really do weave them in brilliantly towards it to the story, Thank with you. with a bit of back history as well. But sometimes that can be a bit jumpy around the place. But you 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 did it with the plum, so well done on that. Thank you. Um, you had been a court reporter before, hadn't you? Yes, um, and yeah. that must have helped feed into your your interest and also the, the writing. Yes, um, I suppose I worked for the Connacht Tribune as a, a local great reporter. Paper, yeah. So you cover everything. It's 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 a great foundation in journalism. Mm. But I always loved court and kind of morbidly inquests. Um, uh, yes, very very interesting. But I also love reading because I don't cover court anymore now. But I love reading about court cases and and. I always think, I mean, from having covered them, you know, we hear about these tragedies, particularly in local communities where there are deaths and or maybe there's a feud. Just it, it can be a small amount of money in a will. It can be a right of way on land or mm. a fence between mm. a hedge between two gardens. And, the, the you know, it can create such pain and such hatred that goes down through generations. Um, but. You, you get little dribbles of information come out in the aftermath of the, the the tragedy. Then the court case, the inquest, a bit more comes out. But I'm always fascinated by the real story behind it because nobody knows, only the people who are living it, what mm. actually happened and what went on. Yeah, that uh, you described that perfectly. And, and that's why I remind, if, if you could say, what is this book? John B. Keane meets Agatha Christie, you know. It's, oh, brilliant. It, no, but, but it, but it <laughs> you is might that, steal that. Yeah, you can have it. Uh, because it does, it, 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 it's a distinctly Irish book in that sense. It might be universal because land is land. Yes. But we seem to have a relationship with the land like no others. I mean, you're from Galway. Yes. Uh, if you go further out to Connemara where your next book is, is set, we'll get to that in a minute. But you, you, those stone walls, that, you know, even in amidst hunger, they were built to say, yeah. this is my patch. Uh, so for whatever reason, and right up to the, the you could call it the housing crisis, could yes, be related yeah. to it. We, we, we all feel uh, that we deserve, need and want and are owed maybe um, a, a patch of land. Yeah, we have a visceral connection. It seems to be distinctly connection. Irish, it's this like primal need Need yeah. for it yeah. could could come from the famine. Who knows? But that's yeah. that's another yeah. day's work. Um, the slurry pit struck me as as fascinating because I've heard stories and you see them on the news mm. of farmyard um, and not only accidents but death. And I mean, there was one particular one with a slurry tank that was just so awful yes. and so tragic. Um, and I think again, people will resonate with with farm farmyard accidents and deaths. Is that is that something that you wanted to draw attention to as well? Yes, I don't know where the the. I suppose I would have read you know reports over the years and just thought, you know, you immediately think about the families involved and think how how horrific it you know it is, and how easily it can happen. And when I started to, I don't know why I had this idea of a slurry pit in in my head, but I actually went to a farmer who my husband knew. And I said, I don't think he'd often be asked, will you show me your slurry pit? Yeah. But he brought me on a tour of it. And I was, even as Kate in the book is amazed at the size of the thing. I was yeah. expecting a small tank. Yes. This was huge. It was the whole length of the, you know, the barn. He brought me all around, showed me how the agitator and everything worked. And it's just that something, you know, it's so dangerous and so lethal. And it's part of, of you know, an everyday working farm. And I mean, there's, there's huge health and safety regulations now. But going back years, there there weren't. And Michelle spoke about how her own struggles with anxiety and depression informed some of the book. I I would have um, had my own, I suppose, struggles with depression and anxiety over the years. And I've, I've written about those for the Irish Times. I'd be quite open about it. Yeah. 
but I suppose she is quite a sensitive character. She finds life can be a bit tough um, when you're that sensitive. And I can too, which isn't great when you're reading. Well, yeah. at, luckily the reviews have been positive. Yes. But I mean, if I, I could read one positive review and pick the one negative comment in it. And I suppose that's the that's the only bit in the book where I would think that there's, you know, one of a the little characters. A bit of yourself. Bit of myself, um, yeah. uh, it, it, it's, as a first time writer, the reviews, uh, you, you've just got to be careful who and what. You know what I mean? You read, a yeah. lot of, yeah. you, you'll find that some people just, just aren't into you. Yes. And some some person will read or, you know, read something and say, this person isn't for me and will consistently say, it's not, you're not their bag and that. Yeah, you just have yeah. to roll with that. So there's a, there's an elephant, elephantine skin required sometimes. Uh, have I think. To, I'll have to grow that. Well, I'll, I'll give you some tips. Okay. <laughs> All fair. Uh, but but you, you really have to trust, you know, the, the, the people whose opinion matters to you most and then go with that, I, I think, in, in terms yes. of reviews. Uh, but the response has been very, very warm and you're happy with what people have been saying. Thrilled. Yes, it's been amazing. And other Irish authors, I mean, Patricia Scanlon yes. shared something yesterday on her Twitter. And I was just, I was. I actually said I was coming up on the train and I would have cried if there hadn't been people around me <laughs> with, with joy. Because, I mean, she was just, she said, a new Irish talent to the, you know, the Irish writing community. And Sheila O'Flanagan had, um, you know, quoted from my book and any of the authors that I've met so far. They've just been so welcoming and so warm. It's it's lovely. And then Hachette Ireland, the publishers, they have been amazing. Just, you know, so supportive, so hands on. Yeah. And I think it's the advantage of having an Irish publisher as opposed to being lost, you know, with a big UK publisher. It's much more personal and much more. It's just so supportive. Great. Well, I'm delighted you're getting you're getting that response. And you 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 talked to a lot of people, didn't you, to get this story to yes. a lot of experts you know, yes, to, yeah. to pull the story together. Your journalistic background probably helped in that. Yes, but even there, I mean, you're you're reaching out to people not as a journalist, but as somebody who's writing a book that may never go anywhere or see the light of day. And I emailed Margot Bolster, who's one of the assistant state pathologists. And straight away she came back. Yes, we meet for coffee. And I was actually saying to your researcher, if the people at the next um, table to us were listening, I mean, she was basically giving me advice on where to bury, you know, how to bury a body without it being discovered or, yes. you know, that it would work around the story that I wanted to write. Yeah. And, you know, we were going into quite it, quite a lot of detail, um, but I would have loved to have been eavesdropping yeah. on that conversation. Yeah, yeah, just going, what are they, who, yeah. who are these she, people? You know, it's just the, and there was Alan Crowley, he was a crime scene technician that she gave me his number. He came yeah. to my house, stood there for three hours. I could have kept him for a week with all the stories and you know they're they're just so helpful and Ryan asked Michelle about our love of crime writing we love crime writing in this country love it yes. like it, and whether it's Nordic or Irish and the Irish and yours is in, and a, a great fresh new addition to 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 the writers of of these books uh, do you know what where that comes from what what is what is the, the morbid uh, to use your word I don't know I mean I know in my own case my dad used to have the house full of these murder mystery magazines Did he really? true crime yeah and my mum my mum died when she was 56 and we used to always say to dad you're never going to meet another woman if you bring her into this house because <laughs> I mean it was like serial killer <laughs> Vibe. Yeah, but like if you look at uh, this, a lot of the streaming services, they're obsessed with yeah, true crime and yeah. serial killers, and, and it'll be in the top ten of, of any in a given day. I don't know. We have this part of us that that it's seems to be darkness. Darkness. Yes. But we like the humor as well. The dark humor. Uh, oh, it. listen, yeah. it's my favorite. I was in primary school with Michelle in Galway. Says uh, Katrina Divney. Is that right? In yes. in Mother Cottage in Liscanner. 
Yes. Do you know Katrina? I, I do because I used to cog all my maths off her. I <laughs> couldn't do maths. Yes, I remember well going down to her house. I was in primary school with Michelle and distinctly oh. remember teachers from fourth to sixth class telling her how talented a writer she was. Even then, we all in the class could see how imaginative oh. the stories she wrote were a step above everyone else. And I'm delighted for her success. The book is such a page turner. Oh, that's so lovely. Well, that's coming that's from so a former classmate. I was useless at maths, but she... Pulled me out of a lot of holes there. Well, fair play. <laughs> nice way to say thank you after all these oh. years. Did you, um, uh, I can, can I ask you a straight question? What took so long, do you think, to get the book out, given oh. your, your obvious talent? I, well, confidence would have been, uh, you know, one thing. And I, I did journalism, had to get out and make a living. Um, then time. Uh, the depression, I think, didn't help because, you know, you have to be motivated and you're you have to make yourself sit down and write. And when you're going through periods of depression, you just aren't motivated. You're you're just about motivated to do your own job and keep going. Then I had three children quite close together in my 30s and mm. postnatal depression after postnatal depression. That was kind of all, all three. a decade. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so a decade me, above blur. Yeah. That's a long time to have a blur, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you know it, it you really need to be in the frame of mind that you can sit down and have the headspace and, and the motivation motivation is a big part of it yeah i can imagine it's you're the second person author i've interviewed in the course of 14 days or a week even uh, to talk about postnatal depression and f how it can fuel or hamper the process being uh, cecilia hearn was with us oh, last right. week saying the same yes. thing and uh, it it uh, i don't know what what it does to to the mind but as you say blur is is, is probably a start but T tell me how it, how it affected you. Um, well, I suppose it's you have the depression, but you also have this baby to mind. Um, with the first one, it's all very scary. And then when you have, I had three, four and under and I was living in Blarney. Um, my own mum had passed away quite some time before that. So I didn't have her. And that grief over her loss just came up so strongly. My first child is Lucy, named after my mother. And actually, the book is, is dedicated to my mother, who was just amazing. Yeah. Everybody who knew her just said she was a lady. She Everybody died very her. young. Yeah, she died. She had she got breast cancer, but she had the all clear. And yeah. then five years later, she went to the doctor and she basically was sent straight into hospital and she was given three months to live. And she didn't last any longer than that. So it From was cancer? endometrial cancer. Oh, yes. God, yeah. I'm sorry to hear that. But she would have been you know, very full of life and very, she never drove. She cycled everywhere, really healthy and fit. Yeah. And um, so, it, you know, it was a huge shock. It was a huge blow to the family. But then when you have your own child, yes, it just brings it all back I've, up again. I've heard this before, that you have your own child and, and it's almost like a delayed grief yes, or yeah. a different uh, a different type of grief has, has emerged from, from the depths to say, you didn't even know this existed and here and, it is. And you know that she would have loved that child so much with those children and she would have okay. just, you know, she probably would have moved into my house. Yeah. But um, it's just the sadness that she missed all that and that they missed that as well. You, you write uh, very movingly, uh, even it's, it's fiction of the main character, uh, the father in the, in the, in the film, in the, in the film. That's a good, that's a compliment, by the way, because it, it was cinematic. <laughs> really. But uh, and, and he's drifting into the to the to that uh, grey world of, of Alzheimer's. Yes. And that came from firsthand experience as well, in some ways, did it? It did, even though Jimmy's completely different. My dad um, was just he was larger than life character I suppose yeah. um, jolly singer um, but dad's dementia I would never be able to write creatively about dad's dementia okay. because he was you know when you go into the late stage it's just so 
awful. It yeah. was his his last six weeks was extremely traumatic. Actually, it was I wrote about that as well. Yes. Um. So I don't think I could write creatively. I'd, I would just be I'd find it too sad and I'd find it too depressing. Michelle McDonough from The Ryan Tuberty Show. And on the Ray Darcy show in the afternoon, we went ziplining with roving reporter Sinead Newlecon. Where am I today? Well, I'm a nervous Nelly today here in Tibratton Wood. I'm near the Dublin mountains. It's also called Pine Forest. And I understand why, because there are pine trees everywhere. They're very, very tall. They're very, very beautiful. I'm not far from the M50. It's kind of nice to know that you're so close to the city, so close to the hustle and bustle, but also that you have this lovely area that's very quiet, that you can go for a walk and relax or go to Zip It, an activity centre that's here, located in the woods, and you can go ziplining. Uh, and that's what I'm up to today. Yeah, yeah, yes. It wasn't your choice. We volunteered you, as they say. <laughs> yeah, no wonder I'm a nervous Nelly. Yeah. You're not exactly a willing participant in this, but, but it's good to push yourself out of your comfort zone. Um, it certainly is. I'm like a crash test dummy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so you're, you. Let's put it down on the table here. You're, you've a fear of heights. I'm not good with heights. And right. this morning I was googling zip lining, and I went to trusty Wikipedia, and they had a few names for zip lining: zip lining, zip wiring, flying fox, and wait for it, Ray. Wait for it. Death slide. <laughs> 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 so I didn't feel great after reading that. Have you done anything involving height before? Have you jumped out of a plane or bungee jumped or anything like that? Well, quite recently I went abseiling in Limerick. And, well, I say I, I say I went abseiling. I went to the top of King John's Castle. But I was too chicken. I was too didn't do it. and I couldn't go right. through with it. Yeah, that creates oh. a little bit of a problem because you're up there. And we're expecting you to do it. That's the whole plan tonight. <laughs> so, yeah, wish me luck, wish me luck. <laughs> i tell you what, I'll have a couple of songs standing by. <laughs> yeah, nothing related to heights. <laughs> no, you're not. not yeah. <laughs> you raise me up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> nice one. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> no, but you know what? Maybe when I'm up there, maybe when I have the instructor by my side, maybe I have a little bit of Dutch courage and I'll just go on with it and do yeah. my best. And maybe when you get when it's in your head that you're on live radio and you have to deliver. Maybe, maybe that's And that, that yeah. And that. But the <laughs> or risk, else I'll get the P forty five. But it's a it's it's a leap it's a literal leap of faith, isn't it? Because it is. you are jumping off what is a secure uh, platform uh, and you're jumping into midair. It is secure. That's the thing. That's and the I thing. Oh, of course secure, it is. Yes, you're, 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 yeah, yes. 100% but something secure. in my yes. mind doesn't let me understand that it's secure when I'm up there and when I'm about to do it. And that's how I felt when I did the abseiling or didn't do the abseiling as well. <laughs> yes, yeah. There was that half second thinking, will I be OK? And I know I'm going to be OK. Yes. So it's, it's irrational. It is irrational, but, but most fears are irrational. That's the thing. Mm. Uh, I, I, I've, done ab, I've done abseiling, I've done zip wiring uh, and I, I think abseiling is more difficult. I, I, okay, well, that's, I like it, to hear that. Because you're stepping out over the edge and it's just, you know, uh, whereas yeah. you can actually see physically, you're clicking on the thing, you can see the wire, you're holding on. You know, it's, mm-hmm. there's, I, th- I think that oddly there's something more solid about zip wiring than abseiling. Now, that's just a personal opinion. Um, yeah. yeah. What I found difficult with the abseiling was sitting into the harness. That oh, was yeah. the toughest point for me. And you, you have your back to the ground as well, don't you? 
yeah, it's just so unnatural. Yes, because you're 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 yeah you're lying back and you have to give your surrender your weight to the rope. Yeah, which but I was with others. And they really enjoyed it. And when you see the buzz somebody else gets off doing it or the thrill that they get off doing it, you want to be able yes. to do it. Like yes. I, I almost felt like trying again and again. But I don't know, that's just the fear got the better of me. Right, OK. Then later, Ray checked in with a very nervous Sinead. How are you feeling? I, I'm feeling OK. I feel... I feel like I can do this. I've been um, talking to Owen here and he's talked me through exactly what I need to do. I feel comfortable. I I don't feel incredibly comfortable, but I do feel comfortable knowing that he's by my side. He's gone through the safety um, rules and regulations, etc. I know that I'm... See, like I said to you earlier, I know that I'm not going to fall. Yes. I know that it's safe, but it's just irrational. Yes. So what has he told you? What has he told you? Well, so I have my harness on. It's kind of like um, <laughs> skims or uh, spanks. Right. I feel like I'm okay. really <laughs> sucked in with this on. Right. <laughs> I have, um, oh God, the terms. So I have, I can see the cable in front of me and I'm attaching the pulley. Is that correct, Owen? Yeah, that's correct. So you're just going to slip that on behind your two clips there. Okay, right. so I'm going to pass the microphone to Owen as I do this. Okay, Two seconds, yes. right? Owen, right. oh, if you hold it close to Sinead yeah. there so we can hear her as well. Yeah, get, get no bother at all. Yeah. So, oh, Owen has already told me how to do this, but you might talk me through it again. I'm removing this, is it? Yeah. So you're going to take that one off. Okay. Pop it onto the yellow key there. Pop it onto the yellow key. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, okay. okay. Like an ice cream, you said? Yeah. Okay. And do the same with your second one. Okay. We're getting there, Ray. We're getting there. Hang on a second now. Okay, so I've attached the two pulleys. Is that correct? Two two clips. Two clips. clips. (laughs) Right, okay. Okay, and now I grab on. Now, hold on. Owen, will you just check there? Because sometimes with live radio and and people doing things like this, they they lose sight of the safety aspect of it. So I just want to make sure that everything is as it should be and that Sinead is 100% safe. Yeah, 100%. You don't need to worry, Ray. We'll okay. make sure she makes right. her way back to the office safely. Right. Okay. <laughs> now, now, now okay. Sinead, you're bringing us with you, are you? Uh, well, no. I, I, Owen has the microphone now, so you might hear me as I'm going across the zip line. Uh, can you not, can <laughs> if you I not, manage to go across. Can you not stick the uh, phone in your pocket and bring the microphone with you? For the laugh. Okay, hang on two seconds. <laughs> right, I might okay. take Owen's headphones off. So, yes, yeah, yes. Okay, and, gotcha. and just disconnect his headphones completely. There you go. Yeah, okay. So we, we've said goodbye to him right. there. Thanks so much, oh, Owner Taxi Operations okay. Manager with Simplify. Okay. okay. So no, this is fine. This is fine. You're happy. You have the okay. microphone and you, that, that is, that's too all doable, is it? This, it is. Right. It is. Yeah, okay. Wow. Wow. Live zip so. wiring. Right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Okay. Will I, ca- will I count you down or will I count you in? Right. I might need a push, I think, maybe. <laughs> no, no, I'll just go for it. Right. Yeah. Five, I'm okay. Okay. four, three, two, one, go! Ah! Ah! Ah, jeepers. Jeepers. Oh, no, the phone. Oh. Are you okay? Oh, sugar. Are you okay? Hear me? Yes, Ray, can you hear me? Back. Oh, God. I'm here, oh, my back. Oh, oh. I thought we'd lost it. Are you okay? Are you okay? I'm okay, but the wire, the wire came off and I couldn't hear you. Okay. I thought that you thought that I had fallen. No, you, I did, I did. I actually did. Okay. You're okay, brilliant. How was that? I'm okay. Grace. Oh. Yeah, I think she's okay. That's Sinead Neulicon from The Ray Darcy Show. 
And on Today with Claire Byrne, home economist Agnes Boucher-Hayes was back to talk laundry and today she was tackling those stains. So there are three different types, are there, of stain removers? Um, there are three different types of, when you're dealing specifically with stain removers but some of these are actually already in your washing powders so just to be aware that most of our general day-to-day stains can be removed through laundering correct laundering but there are going to be some that will stick now basically Claire there's three types there's the enzyme so if you have a protein so if you have a meat or a, you know a drip of a sauce or you know if there's something that is protein based an enzyme will remove that. Then you have um, oxidising stain removers and they have very light uh, chemicals and they work by oxidising the stain and removing the colour. So when you think of that remember to use these really carefully with coloured clothes because if you use them, like obviously if they're a commercial one, you know, there are some for colours and some for whites and they will have different levels of ingredients and one of the ingredients is a little bit of um, uh, sodium hydroxide so that would, uh, sorry sodium peroxide so that hydrogen peroxide I'm getting my chemicals mixed up so that will actually act as a bleach and the third one then is just a really strong surfactant which basically clings to the dirt and one part likes water one part likes the dirt it clings together and it'll change it will remove the dirt from the clothes and that would be better you know with a on sometimes on a on a, on a, on a more delicate fabric Okay I, I'm very confused now because if, if there was a stain on something white yeah. I'd just I'd chance a bit of bleach? Well I wouldn't now if you're going now Claire don't, don't be doing this to me. The whole country no stay away from bleach now the last year I'm telling you all now stay away from the bleach because if you if you say something like that people will be out with, with no, some commercial I'm just bleach. saying what I would do I know nothing you're the expert. No because you see sometimes bleach can actually make your clothes yellow and it'll take the, the colour totally out of coats I have I, I, I personal experience as a child my mother got me a beautiful coat and I decided to take a stain out with bleach I learned from a young age you don't do that Okay. so I walked around with a navy coat with a kind of a red tinge to part of the end <laughs> right hand side so just to be careful with it you can now there I would always personally go with a laundry bleach I would go to the laundry aisle uh, find that section and find a bleach there are plenty of commercial varieties available there so that's what I would use initially you can any of the powders that you can get or even just sometimes to remove a stain soap just soap that you would have at home that has the, the surfactants in it to remove the dirt if it's, you know, for, for some stains. But you could also, uh, if you want it to be white, white, sometimes with laundry, you know, things can get a little bit grey. Then you can add some of the, you, some people might use vinegar. People are using vinegar for everything, Claire. Yeah. Um, but uh, there are other more commercially available ones that wouldn't take as long. If you wanted to get something really white with vinegar, you can absolutely do that. But you can let it sit in vinegar overnight. Now it's not pure vinegar, it's a vinegar diluted one to one and then you would actually boil if you want something really white, you're, you know, it's reverting back a couple of decades but you can boil uh, whites in vinegar and it will clean them as well. Okay, we had somebody in here last week and this is going slightly off the point mm. of stains but she was talking about getting the smell out of like the underarms of clothes yeah. if you didn't want to wash them with vodka yeah. and what cheap vodka 
and water in a spray bottle. Have you ever heard of that before? I know, but I can understand the principle if it's if it's like paint stripper. Yeah, it'll take anything out. <laughs> yeah. Won't it? Might smell uh, differently, yeah. but, but perhaps not pleasant. Also, but you can, if you have a little bit of a pit uh, pit pit whiff like that, what you could actually use is a little bit of bread soda, um, because that is uh, that that's that that will remove the it odor. Kills the smell. That'll kill the smell. So if you mix that with a little bit of water, put it on. Uh, the the clothes where the where the smell is most pungent, and allow it to sit for a little while, and then launder as normal. Save the vodka, make a Cosmo. <laughs> Agnes Badger Hayes from Stay with Claire Byrne. Now to number five Tullow Street in Carlow Town. Ken Tucker was talking to Joe Duffy on the live line. Ken Tucker, Ken, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Joe. Nice to talk to you. I listen to your programme most evenings. Fair play to you. Now tell me a little bit about yourself, Ken. Why are you on Liveline? You are still working at... 92. Good man. And what well, are you... that's the reason, really, I've got on to you, or someone oh. rang me and said that you were speaking to people who were working at, uh, on, uh, still working at 80 years of age, so yeah. they said I should get on to you, and that's the reason. Uh, at 92, I'm still working full-time oh, and man. enjoying as much. I came, actually, I'm, I'm celebrating 70 years in, in, in my shop this year. Well, and what, what do you do, Ken? Well, uh, it's, it, that's a long story, Joe. What okay. I do at the moment, of course, is I'm not doing as much now as I used to do when I came first. Like, you know, I when I came to the shop, my own shop now, at yeah. 1952 it was, wow. I, I was doing everything. <laughs> I was bending watches, I was dressing windows, I was serving customers, I was doing everything. But now, now with uh, you know, times have changed. With now, I I do mostly in the workshop at the back, rather than serving customers. I do a lot of the engraving, and uh, I do I specialize in uh, dis- watch displays. Wow! I dress the windows from top to bottom for, uh, from the watch point of view, and I love that. And I, I'm I. I'm proud of the fact that I taught myself how to do it because when I came here uh, first as I said in 1952 I had never I'd never served a customer actually I was in the workshop actually I was serving my time in, in Morton's in Nassau Street oh, and what did you serve your time as Ken? as a watchmaker? Well, I served my time oh. as a watchmaker right now wow. and, and it's it's, it's, it's it's really strange how it happened, Joe, because there was never anybody in my family ever into the watch business. Okay. My dad was a, was a, a dentist, and uh, I actually sat, sat for the dental uh, exam there. Okay. And, and the dental college was in, um, in Stephen's Green, wasn't it, that time? Uh, yeah, or down but, at the back of Trinity, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but he, he soon discovered, actually, that I, I, I never wanted to be a dentist. Okay. And out of the blue, one, one day, I was speaking, he, he got on to me and he said, would you like to serve your time to be a watchmaker? Yeah. And I said, well, shall I never go at it? Brilliant. And uh, how he came about it, I, I just don't know, because there was maybe he had, he said, the name, the, the shop I'm in now is Douglas Jude, maybe he had an eye on it, I don't know, although George Douglas, who owned the shop at that time, was still, well, he was an elderly man, but anyway, I he pulled another master stroke and got me into Morton's in Nassau Street. And is that where you, did you serve an apprenticeship? Yes, I did. I was four oh. years there. Oh, okay. And I really, Joe, I wasn't really finished when, when that shop 
uh, when this shop I'm in now, Douglas Jewellers, came okay. on the market, George Douglas died, and my dad, along with two other shareholders, he hadn't the money to buy it to toast completely himself, and okay. uh, so. he bought it then for me on condition that I would come down as manager, employee manager at that time, and that was 1952. And you've been, and, and did you, did, were you apprentice to somebody? I was an apprentice in 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 the in the, the watchmakers at the in the bench in in Martin's okay. right enough. Yeah, but it was yeah. mostly on. I, I wasn't finished my time at all actually when 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 this shop came up for sale. And I I go so far as to say, Joe, that that uh, I was I self-taught myself. Well done. I well self-taught done. from then on. I I picked it up from the four years I was there in Martin's, but. Uh, there was a lot more to it, and I taught myself from there on. And is there a particular watch that you specialise in? Well, not really. We we have we have most of the popular lines like mm. uh, Boss, Seiko, uh, Raymond Weil, uh, uh, Tommy Hilfiger, all the all the wow, popular okay. brands. Like you know, uh, um, but are watches now like they were when you started? I thought they were all. Little computers in them, rather than ah, there's uh, there's totally different in the watch business now, Joe. That's that was the big change and uh, the mechanical the big change and I forget what year it was when when the battery watch came out, the quartz watch we call oh, it now. Of course, yeah. When the battery watch came out, like you know, and all of a sudden from winding watches we had a watch that would keep time within a minute a year, kind of thing, which was on t- on her telev in the, in the mechanical watches. And and all nearly watchmaking went out to the door at that time because what's done nowadays with watches, if there's something, if if a watch comes in that's not keeping time or there's something wrong with it, you just take out the movement out of it and put in a new one. Watchmaker Ken Tucker from the Live Line with Joe Duffy. And on Morning Ireland, the worsening situation in Sudan. As of last night, 88 Irish citizens and family members have been evacuated from Sudan. But the situation for those still there is a nightmare. And countries and aid agencies are scrambling to evacuate staff who can leave with hopes of an extended ceasefire to quell the violence. For the latest, we're joined on the line by Marie-Hélène Vernet, who's the UN High Commissioner for Refugees representative for South Sudan and Marie-Hélène good morning to you and thank you for speaking to us first of all would you give us the latest especially on your own staff because I know the UNHCR you've about 600 people don't you in Sudan yes that's correct Um, most of the staff uh, well all of our staff that was in Khartoum we have finally managed to uh, get out of Khartoum about uh, half of them are now uh, in Nairobi. Um, the other half is still in Port Sudan, so still in Khartoum, but a much safer place without any um, any fighting. And then some of our colleagues from Darfur, which is the other part of Sudan that has seen a lot of fighting, have been uh, evacuated to Chad, others to South Sudan, but some of them, unfortunately, remain still in Darfur. And with your staff gone from Khartoum and Darfur, what happens to the work they were doing, the people they were helping? So we are maintaining operations where it's safe to do so. So in parts of Sudan where um, there is no fighting and where it's possible to work, we still have offices. The plan is to bring people back, colleagues back as soon as possible once it's safe to do so. The reality is that for the 10 days or 
eight days they spent in Khartoum since they started fighting and until we could evacuate them, they could not work. Um, they were literally uh, staying in their rooms and trying to avoid the bullets that were flying around. And the situation at the borders as those, you know, who are stuck there try to flee. So the, the South Sudan border uh, with Sudan is open. Uh, the two countries have obviously a very close relationship. South Sudan got independence from Sudan in 2011. What we're seeing at the border now mostly is South Sudanese who are refugees inside Sudan coming back uh, into Sudan. We're talking about roughly 10,000 people. We're also seeing other nationalities, uh, including some Ethiopian Eritrean refugees, also fleeing into South Sudan, and uh, some Sudanese, but very few at the moment. So the bulk of the people coming back into South Sudan at the moment are South Sudanese who are refugees in Sudan. And what pressure, what are the resources that they will be assisted with there in South Sudan now that they have again fled back? These are South Sudanese, so the idea is really uh, to avoid as much as possible any kind of camp situation. The idea is to really help them once they arrive at the border, help the ones who cannot, so the most vulnerable, try to see what can be done to facilitate their onward journey to their place of uh, final destination. And what about the prospects for a ceasefire? Something uh, that has been discussed and apparently there are discussions about extending a ceasefire. That's not really something I can comment on um, as UNHCR, which of course all of us are hoping there will be a ceasefire and more than a ceasefire, really a resolution of the of the situation inside Sudan. How many people, you know, normally, on, obviously with this violence, it's all different, but how many people would you normally be assisting in uh, Sudan, the UNHCR? Inside Sudan? Inside Sudan, there are uh, roughly... 400,000 uh, refugees. Well, actually, no. These are the refugees who are in camps. There are 800,000 South Sudanese refugees, about 60,000 Ethiopian refugees, 100,000 Eritrean refugees. Now, in some of these cases, Eritrean and Ethiopians, most of them are in the east of the country, which is relatively, relatively peaceful for now and where we have teams that are still working. The, the the biggest numbers really are the refugees who are in Khartoum and that's about 200,000 South Sudanese refugees in, uh, in Khartoum. And what kind of situations have they been living in prior to the outbreak of violence? And what do you know about the situation of many of them now? Well, we have UNHCR teams that have been at the border uh, since uh, 15th of April. So what we uh, what we found is that for the first few days, really nobody arrived. People couldn't move out of Khartoum. And it's uh, since last Thursday, so a week ago, that we started seeing people arriving. The first few days, these were people who were, I'm going to say, relatively well off in the sense that they could afford transportation. They were able to get buses from Khartoum to the border and able to move very quickly once they arrive at the border to to their final destination inside South Sudan. Now, since Sunday, we're seeing people arriving that are really much more vulnerable. Um, People who could not uh, pay for buses, some of them have walked part of the way 
We have separated families arriving and people were really disorientated when they arrived at the border. Marie-Hélène Vernet talking to Anya Lawler from Morning Ireland. Then later, Claire Byrne spoke to broadcaster and author John Simpson about the situation in Sudan. Now, we have been talking a lot here and, and I know in the UK it's the same about the evacuation of international citizens from Sudan over the last few days. But we haven't focused much on the conflict itself and it relates to a power struggle. Will you explain to us how this started and what is going on? Yeah, well, uh, it is quite complicated, like a lot of these things are. And yet it's it's really pretty basic, Claire. I mean, it comes down to a clash of essentially of personalities uh, between two military people, General Al-Burhan, who represents, who's the leader of the of the Sudanese army, and um, what's called the Rapid Support Forces, uh, who are paramilitaries uh, run by uh, a, a character called General Hemedti. And um, it, it all comes down to a proposal that the RSF, the, the paramilitaries, should be uh, brought into the army and um, just just integrated with them. This has happened in loads and loads of countries, particularly in Africa. It's happened in Zimbabwe, for instance. And the uh, army uh, wanting to get control, essentially, of the RSF, says that this should happen within two years. And uh, the RSF says, no, it's got to happen in 10 years. This fairly trivial detail has been enough to create uh, a savage uh, little mini civil war in which about 300 people so far have died in just a matter of days, and um, the whole country is brought to a halt. There's huge danger of um, much greater uh, hunger and um, possibly a, a, a collapse of the of the economy altogether. So, for something fairly trivial, which is basically about power and about control, we've got this this appalling situation there. And then going back even further, this all has its roots back in 2019, not that long ago, but this is when Omar al-Bashir was overthrown and incidentally we found out yesterday that he had been released from prison before this all kicked off, which is a whole other thread to this story. But these groups, they were allies, weren't they, up until very recently? Yes, I mean, they they operated side by side. The RSF um, actually has, uh, uh, as far as I can tell, quite a few people who have previously served in the army. Um, and and they, it was a, a, an uneasy kind of coalition between the two of them. And just this small issue of, I suppose it's not all that small, but the issue of, of about the date on which uh, the RSF should be integrated into the army has actually uh, worsened the the personal rivalry between Hemedti and Al Burhan, and uh, it just turned into this this savage civil war. What what is so sad, Claire, is that after Omar al Bashir was uh, was overthrown, he was after. 30 years in power, pretty vicious dictator, uh, 
toppled in a in a purely popular uprising, which the army only came to uh, quite slowly. Um, it did look briefly as though there was going to be some kind of democratic solution, but you know the army couldn't bear to see, uh, I think, uh, uh, a democratic solution, and so they they took over and arrested the the prime minister who was um, uh, preparing to lead Sudan to some form of democracy. Mm-hmm. And, and what do you read into the fact that Omar al-Bashir was released from prison before this kicked off? Well, he was released to hospital. So, I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean that um, uh, that, that, that he's kind of a free political agent. After all, he's, he's 79. I mean, he's not, uh, he's not a young man. Um, I'm not sure how interested he is in staging a major comeback. I think he's just really interested in protecting his own, his own uh, kind of interests, even in some ways worse and more worrying than what's happened to al-Bashir is uh, there's a, a, another warlord called Ahmed Harun, who um, was really one of the nastiest figures uh, under Omar al-Bashir's uh, dictatorship. And uh, he, he was freed um, in, a, in a jailbreak uh, carried out by RSF forces, and he's now a free man. And I think, I think Ahmed Harun is more of a danger uh, to, to Sudan and its peaceful future than Omar al-Bashir is, because I think Bashir is, is kind of yesterday's man, and I'm afraid I think Ahmed Harun uh, is very much, could be very much today's man. And Claire asked John Simpson about the larger political landscape in Africa. The wider region then, uh, John, how do you assess how this might impact what is one of the most fragile parts of Africa? Yes, it certainly is. Um, the presidents of the surrounding countries, uh, South Sudan and so forth, have been very active in trying to damp down uh, the, the, the conflict between the army and the RSF because they know the dangers both to, to Sudan itself and to the, to the wider region from the Western point of view, um, apart from a, 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 a desire just to see the whole thing calm and to see some sort of progress towards a, a civilian government, which seems to be quite far away at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also, uh, I mean, the Americans in particular, Americans and British are very nervous uh, about um, the army's um, uh, interest in, in allowing the Russians to have a, a naval base either at Port Sudan on the, on the east coast, on the Red Sea, or, or somewhere else uh, along the coast. And uh, the army's already said it, it, it's interested in this. And uh, as we've seen in other parts of the world, Russia is very keen to extend its influence at the moment. So there's a lot of those of the, the kind of purely national, there's a regional, and then there's this sort of, uh, you know, wider east-west kind of rivalry that, that, that is quite worrying there. It's interesting that you mention Russia because we have heard over the last couple of weeks that the Wagner Group has, a, has an influence here in this conflict. 
How do you assess that influence? Well, I don't think it's very big of of, of uh, wars, of, of disputes, violent disputes. These are just the kind of thing that have uh, historically given the Varga Group over the last 10 years or so, eight years, uh, has given it a, a foothold in, in a number of countries. I mean, further across uh, Africa to the West, in Mali and so forth, they, um, they, they thrive on these things. Um, uh, they make a lot of money for the Wagner Group, um, and they, uh, they, they, they're, they're much prized because they're, you know, they may, the Wagner Group and the Russian army may not be uh, terribly effective in Ukraine, but uh, in, 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 in the African context, they can seem very, uh, you know, disciplined and well-armed and well-organised. And just going back to what you said about the undercurrent of violence and conflict that you would have seen yourself on your many trips to Sudan, has that worsened since South Sudan broke away back in, in 2011, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Um, yeah, in in some well, it, it's never gone away. But uh, to some extent, I mean, the, the the creation of South Sudan as an independent state has has kind of uh, stabilised the, the the issue. I mean, there's there's you know that 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 whole business of trying to hold on to an ethnically and religiously different. Um, uh, serious minority, large minority. Uh, that, that's all. That's all finished. And Sudan has had to accept that it's lost control of the south, and the south is um, actually has relations with with Sudan, which are, are not too bad. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they, you know, they're talking. They, they, uh, they, they discuss mutual problems and so forth. So it isn't. That isn't really the. Uh, the, the problem, the, the issue is just this business, I think, essentially of, of personalities that Hemedti, the head of the, of the um, rapid support forces, uh, just feels that he deserves a bigger role in government, probably the biggest role in government. And uh, the army leader, General Al-Burhan, simply won't accept that. And, uh, you know, as has happened so often uh, right across the, the, uh, the continent of Africa, these personal disputes erupt into something much greater and then often start to attract kind of um, uh, ideological elements. John Simpson from Today with Claire Byrne. And that's it for Playback Daily, so mind yourself till next time.